Welcome to Wisdom for Life, where we sift through philosophy to find practical advice that you can use in your everyday life. Hi, I'm Dan Hayes, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Greg Sadler, and our special guest, Michael DeVito. And today, we are talking about professional sports, fandom, and a rational life. So we're going to be tackling the question about whether being a fan can or can't be part of a life oriented by rationality. So we're going to go into a lot more depth about this, but first we want to introduce our special guest for this episode, Michael DeVito, uh, actually our first guest on the Wisdom for Life show. So we're, we're really honored to have you here. Um, Mike played defensive end uh, first at the University of Maine and then for the New York Jets uh, for a number of seasons, then finished out his, his career in the NFL with the Kansas City Chiefs. While he was at the University of Maine, Mike majored in accounting, and then after he retired from football, he went on to earn an MA and MSc, and he's currently a PhD student in philosophy of all fields at the University of Birmingham, working on, among other things, issues of free will and determinism and how epistemology and paradox bear upon these. So we've got somebody who's really like a, a, a triple threat when we want to discuss these issues that we're going to be getting into about fandom, because Mike not only has been on both sides of the fan player fence, we could call it, but also is somebody who is well-versed in philosophy. So we're really have you, happy to have you here on the, uh, the show, and we're looking forward to a, a conversation, despite the fact that we you know, are rooting for different teams, right? <laughs> you mentioned that you played <laughs> against our Packers a number of times. Yes. Well, Greg, Dan, thank you guys so much for having me on the show. It's really uh, an honor to be here, and I'll I'll start real quick with a story. So, uh, playing in the in the NFL, you not you don't normally feel like a fan, right? You're around guys, and you're around these guys who are you know big time, almost celebrity status figures, uh, and you don't norm you know you're around them every day. Uh, but there are some guys who transcend that, and one of those guys was Brett Favre. I remember oh, in two thousand yeah. and 2008, Brett Favre uh, signed with the Jets when I was with the Jets. And I remember the first time he walked in the locker room and all the guys were just like, wow. Like everybody's jaw just dropped. Like, wow, that's Brett Favre. You know, normally with other players, you don't care. That's how I felt the first time I met Greg Sadler. <laughs> because I I have been watching you on uh, YouTube and any, you know, I've started my, my uh, master's degrees in philosophy in 2016. And any time I had an issue or I needed an extra lecture or to get caught up on Kant or Augustine or whoever. It was right to Greg Sadler's podcast. And so uh, it is. A, it really is an honor to be here. And I, I remember the first time we met on Zoom, I was like that same feeling that with Brett Favre, like, oh, my goodness, I can't believe Greg Sadler <laughs> is on the other side of the, the, the uh, 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 video right now. So uh, seriously, no, it, I, I really mean that. And it's, it really is an honor to be here. So thank you guys. Well, we're, we're really happy to have you here as, as well. And we were hoping we can tap your brain in a number of different ways to get a, a lot of insights about, you know, how players view fans too. Um, because, well, you, you and I were talking about this at another time, and this might be a good, good place to bring up some other anecdotes. I remember you mentioning that uh, as a Jets player, in certain places that you would go, the fans 
not even in the stadium, but in the places that you were staying, the hotels and stuff, would make it hard for opposing teams. So, and you said that the Patriots were particularly bad that way, but I imagine it's not just there, right? Well, you'd be surprised, Greg, because uh, it it really is notorious in New England, mm. and especially when you're playing for the Jets, right? Because you got the Patriots, the Jets. <laughs> this is like one of the biggest rivalries in football, um, and so. Yeah, we would have to be strategic whenever we were playing New England about where we were staying. Because if you stayed, especially if you stayed in the Boston, New England area, they, the fans or the Patriots themselves, I don't put it past the Patriots to, to find us, but somebody would find us. And like clockwork, something would happen, right? It would be, uh, you know, the food the food that was catered for, the, for that week didn't show up or... Um, the, 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 this happened more than once. The fire alarm would go off at two o'clock in the morning, mm. and all the, the night before the game, and yeah, all the yeah. guys would have to go outside and wake us up. And so, uh, yeah, New England was one of those places that you just knew. And so, what we ended up doing was staying all the way out in Rhode Island, about 45, 50 minutes away from the stadium. Yeah. Uh, and so now you had to get up early to, to travel out there, but. Uh, uh, yeah, the, the Patriots are going to find any way to beat you. And, and even on Saturday when you get to the hotel, they're going to try to mess you up. And so, uh, so yeah, it was it was notoriously bad in New England. <laughs> so that's it. That's like a war of attrition. Yeah, I mean, that's kind yeah. of interesting because it goes beyond just the stadium and, and the places just outside of the stadium where you, you expect a lot of back and forth sort of sort of stuff between fans of, of rival teams and, you know, giving giving the other team a hard time. And that covers like a whole geographical area, you know, where yeah. it's permeated by what, what would you call it? Like a certain sort of fandom that we, we might view as definitely irrational and maybe bad for, for the game in some ways. Yeah. I, oh, I'm sorry, Dan. Go ahead. I was okay. just, it makes me think of like, okay, so fan is derived from the word fanatic. And so, mm -hmm. like, on the, on the worst case, maybe it will take the, the Patriots fan here or, like, maybe some of the, the really negative things that you see from some of the um, uh, Philadelphia Eagles fans. Put these at one end of the spend, spectrum of, like, okay, you're, you're taking this too far, I guess. You're, you're mm -hmm. taking this um, yeah. outside of the context that you really need to for this particular thing. And we're talking about how this uh, modern usage of this fandom needs to have is is this like wide spectrum. And uh, I guess right here in this, the central question is where should we actually put ourselves on this spectrum for a uh, something that you consider a sports team, and how much is that going to subsume your life? Right. I, and I think it's a great question to ask. And uh, it's something that since I've retired, I've pondered more because uh, uh, I imagine I, the more I become a fan, the more I get addicted to the game. And, there, and, and when you're watching your former team or your former buddies or, or guys that you really care about, coaches you care about, it adds another element of uh, maybe addictiveness, and I've, I've had a really tough time since I've retired watching football. Um, but going back to when I was playing, and maybe something that will add more, make this point more salient, um, there were a few places, Oakland, you said Philly, um, New England, where if my family was going to the game, I would tell them, listen, you don't wear yeah. our jerseys, don't let them know, because you knew that they could, you know, 
get they could have the threat of physical violence, not just heckling, but like physical violence. Um, and that always made me so nervous. And it just, I, but I never took the step back to think, wow, that really is a silly, that's a silly thing that this is, that this is such, like you said, Greg permeated the culture, permeated that area that it becomes like a gang, right? Being a, a fan of a team is like being in, in that, in that gang. Yeah, I think. Uh, and if you're with the, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, Greg. go ahead. I was going to say, and if you're from the rival, you know, you're from the rival area, you know, that's, that's war. It's what you're, you're entering uh, into a war zone almost. And so not to over dramatize no, it, I but I mean, it is something as a player you have to worry about. That's, that's something that, I mean, we've been noting this sort of thing in Western culture for over 2000 years. Marcus Aurelius, mm-hmm. um, in the meditations, he, he begins with this this whole chapter about thanks about this and thanks about this. And one is that from his, I think it's from his teacher Fronto, Dan, you can correct me if I'm wrong. He learned not to be a supporter of the blues or the greens. These, these are the chariot racing teams and yeah. people would go nuts. Like they would, yeah. you know, not only would, did you have the thing of like, if your team wins, you go crazy. If your team loses, you go crazy. Even when the chariots were like just running down the track, fans would be punching each other and and going after each other. And so when we think about is is it is it okay to be a fan, you know these these really negative things come up and they have throughout the centuries. I mean it's and it's not necessarily just about sports. You can think about medieval villages where every once in a while people would just get a whole bunch of clubs and go over to the the next village over and start racing trouble with them. Yeah. Those guys would yeah. come out. There's something there's something endemic and irrational to group activity, especially when it involves, you know, let's call it muscular uh, activity, right? We, we, yeah. And young men, too. Um, although there's plenty of women that, that can certainly give them a run for their money. And so I think one of the issues that we, we have to grapple with, and we're going to do that here, is how do, we, how do we avoid that stuff or deal with that stuff when it happens and, and be rational, but also, you know, enjoy ourselves as sports fans. And, and maybe some people would say, well, you can't do that. you you got to give up sports altogether because it's always going to be fundamentally irrational. All three of us clearly are people who have not made that choice. <laughs> Precisely <laughs> why yeah. we're talking about this. Well, it's interesting, Greg, because since I retired, I actually, it, this is the first year that I've been able to return to the game and watch it. But I actually did have to say, okay, Unless I'm gonna, co- unless I have something I have to commentate on, like you have a number of interviews that people would ask me to do or talk about the game or something like that, I would I would watch a game for those reasons if I had an interview commitment. But outside of that, I, I had to step away from it. Uh, uh, the fir- my, my my first year out of the NFL. So just a little backstory: 2015 was my last season, and during that year, I I had sustained two concussions during the season, uh, and they were back to back. And it was right at the time where the movie Concussion had come oh, out and yeah, all yeah. of this new data had come out about uh, brain trauma in the NFL and, and uh, uh, CTE and all of that. And so um, I, re- I got done with that season and I'm contemplating retirement with my wife and she had been pretty quiet about it. And um, about March, when free agency is about to start, the Chiefs call and say, hey, we want, we want you to come back. We're going to put a contract on the table. We want you to come back. And, you know, this is two months since I played, so I'd forgotten about all the concussions and injuries and how tough the season was before. And I said, oh, yeah, well, okay, fine. You know, this is what I do. I play football. And I brought it to my wife, and she basically said, 
you know, if you go, you're going by yourself because I'm not, I'm not going. I can't watch you, you know, knocked out on the field anymore. I'm done. We have another kid on the way. Our, my, my youngest son was done, was born in uh, November of that year. And so we knew he was coming. And so now I'm watching the Chiefs that season. And I know I could be out there with them. And I'm watching them mm. play. And it just was a hell of a, like, I, I was just such an awful person to be around. Um, while you were watching I, it, I, I mean. Or... While I was watching it, I, 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 like when the Chiefs did did good, I would I would be crazy because I wish I was there with them. Yeah. And when they did bad, it was like I need to be experiencing that suffering with them. And it just made me an awful husband, an awful father. You just didn't want to be anywhere near me. And then to make matters worse, a bunch of the guys on the defensive line, the position I played, got hurt. And so in November, the Chiefs called my agent and said, is he ready? Because we need, we need somebody. Like, is, hey, has he been training? Has Mike been training? Because we want him to come back yeah. for the rest of the season. And so I was like, seven games, I miss training camp. I miss all TAs. I miss all the crap that as a veteran you don't want to do. And my wife is still like, you know, again, if you go, you're going uh, on your own. And so obviously I'm not going to leave her, my newborn. Uh, and so now I'm watching them struggle, the Chiefs struggle with – a defensive line that's all beat up, and I'm the guy, they need me there. And it just, my entire life was consumed with this hell. Uh, and I, there was nothing I can do to kick it. So after the 2016 season, I said, I'm done. I can't, I can't do this anymore. It's, it's totally just, it's totally all consuming. I mean, I had no, I, I had no idea until recently I had to actually be a fan and watch the game. Uh, in like you said, in a rational sort of now, way. What's the difference then be, between being a fan in a rational way and being one of these crazy fans? Because I mean, what you're describing is something different, right? It's it's, yeah. it's a I'm I'm belong to this organization, but some of the crazy fans almost seem to think that they are parts of the organization as well. So uh, what? Go I, ahead, Dan. I had a thought about this because. It seems like we have two organizations that are kind of symbiotic here. We have the the actual football team, the the business, the organization that there is, and and maybe you want to even like make this into a tri tri symbiotic thing, okay. um, in, in that we have uh, maybe three three organizations. You have the core team, you have the organization that is the um, the money making, the like the, the ownership, and then you have this uh, third group. This is the fans that are like they feed off of they feed to, uh, off of all of the uh, pageantry and all of the storylines that are going on with this. Um, but and they feel like they are part of it, but they are actually not. It's kind of like um, people who. Uh, create these relationships with people that are like YouTube celebrities, even though they have no, or, or just any celebrity whatsoever. Uh, and they feel like this deep connection to them, even though it's really kind of like this one way, uh, this, you know, vicarious living yeah. this life. That, yeah. that I think is characteristic of fandom in, in general, you know, I mean, you look mm -hmm. at all the different cons that exist precisely so that people can go and think about Star Trek, for example, right? So some of those those uh, original cast members are still out there <laughs> going to, to yeah. the cons and like meeting people. How many people have they met? Like it's got to be some of them, hundreds of thousands at this point. 
there's no way you can be have a personal connection with, with all of these. And then, you know, we've got all the all the newer ones and and people really do get kind of obsessive with it, you know, and, and well, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry, Greg. I was just gonna say on the flip side, it's funny how fast things change. So I remember in the article you wrote, Greg, you talked about how you, you took us through the history of the Packers, yeah. right? And how growing up they stunk. Which has not always been illustrious, get, yeah. Yeah, right. But then you get to the Aaron Rodgers era, and now they're, you know, getting the Super Bowl, the Brett Favre, Aaron Rodgers yeah. era, and they're doing well. But then in 2017, you talk about how Rodgers gets hurt, and now all of a sudden, every, the, the, the expectation of it set so high that everybody's turning on the team. And, hey, we, this can't happen. Like, we deserve that. Everybody forgot about. Yeah. And so it's interesting because I was thinking about that, and the Chiefs just, just experienced that. So right. So when I went to Kansas City in 2013, the year before, they had finished the season 2-14. and 14. Yeah, I remember. So Andy yeah. Reid comes in in 2013, and we win, the first, we win nine games in a row, right? We finish the season 11-5, get back to the playoffs. And it's basically been like that every year for Kansas City since Andy Reid got out there. Now they lose. They, now take it all. Last year they win the Super Bowl, right? Take it all the way now to Week Five this year, and they they just lost last week to the Raiders. And you can go on Twitter and on social media and see Chiefs fans calling for defensive players and guys who messed up in the game to to get fired, be gone. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a kid. There's a there's a player on the Chiefs who who basically single-handedly got them to the playoffs. And not Patrick Mahomes on, on defense. He was able to make a couple key stops that turned the momentum in these games. And he's really one of the primary reasons outside of Mahomes that they got to the Super Bowl and won the Super Bowl. And he didn't have a good game against the Raiders in Week 5 last week, and they're calling for him to get released. And so it's just it's, it's even fast how crazy it is that they love you, and then they tur- they'll turn on you in a second, you know. And it's like it's almost like an idol, a failed idol, yeah. you know, where your god doesn't show up. You know, and I think that what's what's going on there is so everybody's driven by by motives, right? And you can when you think about what motives go into being a good fan, it's like caring about the organization, wanting nobody to get hurt, you know, everybody to play at their best. Th- these sorts of things that we can we can put into, let's call it an ethos of, of, you know, good sportsmanship and play. But I think there's a lot of people out there that really value success, not just for themselves, because very often they're not experiencing success, but success of whatever it is that they're involved with. And it could be a sports team. I think for a lot of people, it is a sports team. It could also be like um, the success of, you know, their, their local rotary, you know, organization. It could be um, their corporation or something like that. And they're so invested in success as the really good thing that anybody who can't for even just temporarily, as you're pointing out, measure up to that, get rid of them, you know? And, and that's Mm. sort of a recipe for making yourself unhappy and, and also not having a good relationship with, 
whatever object it is that you're supposed to be, you know, showing affection or loyalty mm. to, you know. And right. th so going back to the Packers thing, and actually, I mean, we should talk about some some really, really diehard fans. I mean, it's one thing to be a Packers fan and grow up in the 70s and 80s when the team just had losing season after losing season, <laughs> and everybody was, you know, saying, yeah. oh, this is the year they're going to come back, and we'd get all excited, and then we'd see these these terrible games. Um, and even in the Brett Favre era, there were a lot of games where the it was almost like the Packers' M.O., three really good quarters and then blow it in the fourth, you know? And he'd be like, ah, oh, Packers, you know? Um, <laughs> but but think about Browns fans, you know? I mean, the Browns are hot right now, fortunately, for like the yeah. first time in, what, four decades, uh, I think? Yeah. Um, and I, I know people who are the Browns Lions. fans. Well, yeah, yeah, the Lions too, yeah. It's, well, it's... Greg, I just talked to my friend Joe Thomas today, who was there, who was their Hall of Fame left tackle that was there for for so long, and he and I we asked him. One of my buddies asked him, uh, you know, do you ever wish the team was winning like this when you were there? And he said, you know, I was like, I think he said I was one and thirty-one his last two or three years. Wow. Yeah, one and thirty-one his last two years in the NFL. Uh, oh, I was like, man, I could not imagine that. You guys, you, that is absolute hell going into an organization that's lost that much. I mean, it's just the black cloud that must have been over that place. Uh, so, yeah. So yeah, now, and, and, mean, the, and just, the fans that are that are showing up, they must really be committed, you know? Because um, they, they can't get bragging rights or anything like that, you know? <laughs> that's right. Ahead, so the, they must get something else out of that. And we, we see communities uh, do a lot of things, and as we as, like, social creatures on um, this, yeah. this embrace of a community allows us to kind of get away from our individuality and, and let us uh, subsume ourselves within this community and doing this allows us to have some sort of common purpose and it, it allows us to kind of transcend self-interest in exchange for group interest and like you were talking about mike about like you know oh you know you forget about all the, the pain and how hard it is you know you're two months out of it all you are thinking about is that like that feeling of, of community and working together with your brothers down in the trenches right, and right. just being part of that group and and we derive so much like i guess pleasure and and for a lot of people like a source of meaning yeah um that you 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 can't and, and if you want to extend it to the browns like even though that they they were losing there's still you if you're in the locker room and you're working with these guys every day you have a commitment to these people and you 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 as long as the the locker room is not toxic then you're gonna like you know do everything you can to help out your your brothers there and i think that also extends a little bit to these fandoms that are uh, around these people because they they create a, a community and it does it's not that they have to win or lose it's the community that they're actually valuing yeah that's a great point and i think that was the biggest difference between my time with the Jets and my time in Kansas City. With the Jets, you're in New York, you're in the city, you're still a, you're still a small fish, right? There's a, there's a million other things for people to do out there. There's a, you know, you got Brad Pitt walking down the street. You know, so, so people don't care too much. You know, they care yeah. about their team, but it's not Kansas City. It was a community. It felt like college again, where it was like the whole the whole community was 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 really that 12th man yeah. right so you would i would go out to the to the plaza or go out to the mall or and it was like hey there's the veto like man like 
it, but it wasn't wasn't like a fan thing. It was like a brother thing, you know, a brother sister. Like it was like this is this is our family, and uh, yeah, they they really embodied that more what you're saying, Dan, than than New York did. So yeah, but no, that's right. It's exactly right. It's true. That's interesting. You know, Green Bay because they're based up in in Green Bay. Sometimes there's a feeling like that. They do a lot of community things. But I remember my my sister was up in the Fox Cities and she was working as a bartender in this pool hall and a lot of the Packers players used to come in there. But this is this is much earlier. This is um, you know, in in the the 90s. And this is, you know, the team now is pretty squeaky clean. Um, back then wasn't quite the case, you know, and the Packers would come in and like some of the other people would like leave by, by the other door because they're like, these guys are going to be trouble, you know, <laughs> sort of, yeah, like, yeah, sort of yeah. like the Raiders have been at other, other times, you know, and, <laughs> right. um, and I, so I think that like that ethos uh, component is, is really important too, you know, um, people value their team for different reasons. I mean, like the Eagles, you know, clearly winning and aggression is all they, I, I, I'm, I'm going to generalize here. I'm going to say that's all they really care about. Right. Um, <laughs> I would say something kind of similar holds for, for the, the Pats fans. Um, but I think with other organizations, there are, there's values that come to permeate the organization and they can be there or not be there. You know, I, I, I would also, I'm also yeah. going to go out on sort of a controversial limb here. Uh, although I don't think it's that controversial in Milwaukee and say that, uh, you know, getting rid of McCarthy was, was really instrumental in making the Packers a, a functioning organization again, because he'd been kind of like a lead weight just sitting on, on the team for, for quite mm-hmm. a while. Um, he was quite good in, at the start, you know, but somehow something didn't, didn't work. And, and, that the team got up more and more out of sync. Now watching them when they're playing, they're actually really enjoying themselves. And that, that I mean, we yeah. use the word camaraderie and, and family and ethos. I think that when, when you have an organization that, that has those sorts of characteristics, even if they're not necessarily winning games, um, the fans right. can sense something. And, and I, I don't know how to express this that, that well. You know, what is this something that they're – maybe maybe you yeah. have a better way of, of expressing it. You know, or Dan, maybe you yeah. have some it's, – It's hard to put your finger on, right? But it, So maybe this, this will help flesh it out a little bit. But um, uh, So I, I've, I've lived in New England basically my whole life, right? So I've played New York, played in – uh, played in Kansas City, but grew up in, in New England and, and live in Maine. My wife's from Maine. And so uh, come, I come back here every offseason. And obviously last year, Kansas City wins the Super Bowl. And now now New England's used to win the Super Bowl every other year. So everybody <laughs> up here is, you know, they're, they're so spoiled up here. Yeah. But it was so funny the reaction I got from Patriots fans up here. It was almost like they were like, Mike, you won. You did it. Like you did it. You I was like I've been retired like I retired four years ago. Like I've been here with you the whole yeah, time. Yeah. Like, what do you mean? They're like, no, you did it, man. Kids say did it. You won. Like you got like I did more interviews last year during the playoffs. Interesting. When Kansas City they were in my house. I'm signing autographs. I'm doing local <laughs> media thing. I'm like guys, I, but I, I can't remind them. Like you guys know, like I didn't. This isn't. I'm been here with you. Yeah, like, yeah. I don't. Not on the team. But it just you could just see with them, like you're saying that ethos, that family. Like even when it came to you know me being a, a Chiefs player, not even they just assume that no, no, yeah, you're you're them. That's that's you. Like you're an extension of them. Uh, 
And so I don't know if that helped push it out, but it just such a it just kind of speaks to what you're saying. Like, oh yeah, no, I, I couldn't wrap my head around it, you know. Yeah, yeah you're you're part of the team, even though it, it's it's endearing. It's uh, yeah. you spend enough time that you just you're you're a, a Chiefs player for life. You're just part of the family. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And now the flip the flip side of that. Now you know playing six years for the Jets and coming home to New England. Yeah, I remember people like didn't want anything to do with me. Wow. They were so happy that I went to Kansas City. When mm. I was playing for the Jets, forget I remember my dad went to a game in New England. I were playing in New England. My dad went to one of the games and he was with a bunch of his friends and they had a, a house that they owned near the stadium. So he's over there. And he said, Oh, I gotta use the bathroom. Can I use the bathroom? And they said no. Oh. And th- and he's like, wait, what? He said, no, your son plays for the Jets. Like, you can't come in my house. <laughs> oh. I was like, this is his friends. And they wouldn't even let him in the house. And they really wouldn't. It wasn't like a joke. Like, they wouldn't let him in the house to use the bathroom. I wonder what they, uh, so, like, I wonder the what they thought they were accomplishing by taking that stand, you know? I, I don't know. Is it not that? Or maybe it's just the, like a, an idea of disgust that it, they... They have such negative feelings towards the Jets that anything that is associated with the Jets is seen as disgusting. Contaminated by... It, it did feel that way. Wow. Yeah, it did, that, it did feel like that, Dan, which yeah. is totally crazy to think yeah, about. Yeah, it's, it's highly crazy. irrational, you know? And this is, yeah, this is but, again, that, that side of fandom that we're... We don't want to slip into those sorts of things, right? Right. So maybe right. we should talk about some of the uh, the bad things that fans have done and see like where they're failing here. Okay. So mm. uh, we've got, um, uh, I guess, terms of like motivations and values and how can we have like good or bad motivations. In this case, talking about uh, Mike's dad here and their their <laughs> motivations. You know, like, are they actually trying to hurt you, or are they are they valuing something um, so highly, like? The, the Pats, that anything that would be even, the, 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 I guess the Pats are so sacred in the sense that anything that would potentially harm that sacredness needs to be kept out at all costs. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah, it's, it's, it's um, I mean, it, it demands the sacrifice of other values. <clears throat> like, for example, I mean, later on, we'll, we're going to hopefully talk about virtues associated with good fandom. And I think one of those mm-hmm. is hospitality. You know, yeah. um, something that was finally, you know, it was recognized as a value in ancient Greece. It also played a role in, in monastic culture and, and down through the the ages. Um, but that's almost like the opposite of hospitality. It, it sees the, the other person as not guest, but enemy, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's funny. If you want to throw off an opposing team, when you show hospitality, it's like we don't know how to react i remember really i was playing at maine and we went to play nebraska mm-hmm. and so nebraska is not afraid of maine coming you know one double a maine coming to play <laughs> nebraska at their house like, yeah. to open up the season you know we're the team they're going to beat up on to get going and so that the fans it wasn't i don't know how they are during regular games but like we're walking out and they're like hey guys good to see you like i'm glad you glad you guys made it out this way you know and they're like and we were like wait what like, why, why are you being nice to us? You know, they, they're totally nice. And we were totally, we were shook. You know, we had no idea how to react. It's like, it's almost, you could play reverse psychology on them. You know, it's only getting yeah. their mind more. These guys are so used to getting cussed out. And, you know, uh, although this is kind of like the, one of the basis of, um, 
like a lot of uh, Christian thought of like turning the other cheek. That uh, and it's also like found in uh, game theory, talking about mm-hmm. how um, how can you get the best out of people, and if you're constantly like someone um, uh, makes a move against you, then you know, you want to move against them in response, and yeah. this just goes tit for tat. But tit for tat, um, once one person makes a bad move then everyone's stuck in this bad moves back and forth and so what actually works best in these cases is a tit for tat but every once in a while you are benevolent and you say even though that you did something negative towards me i'm going to do something positive and that's the one thing that gets you out of these uh negative tit for tat like just back and forth such an interesting I never thought of it like that, but you're right. It just keeps escalating when it's the tit for tat. But you take, you know, I, I laugh about this because there are, I've, I've used this piece of advice. My, my wife likes to watch like the Bravo housewife shows yeah. where it's just drama from beginning to end. And I'm always saying, you know, if one person just said, oh, you know what? I'm sorry I did that. Like I, sh- I shouldn't have done that. Mm-hmm. You know, they wouldn't have a show because they would just all the everything would just dissolve, right? But you just got this tit for tat for tit for tat. So I never thought of it in the context of fans and sports, but it's a really it's an it, it is it's an interesting point. I think it I think it would it, it would be a it could be a good strategic move for an opposing uh, fan base to use. I think it would totally throw me off. Yeah, that's interesting because it, it implies that so like Greg the Packers. I'm, I'm going to use them as, as an example again because I, I got to go to Lambeau for the very first time uh, last uh, November for, for a division rival game against the Bears. And the, um, the Packers, um, you know, Packers and Bears are traditional longstanding rivalry. I'm actually a fan of both, and I get a lot of grief from, from people uh, on both sides of the, you know, the, the fence about that. Um, but when you actually are at Lambeau, even when it's the Bears who are playing, and they also will say, you know, I play the Bears, still suck, it, there's a good-heartedness about things. Um, you, you know, you have, you have Packers and Bears fans in regalia sitting next to each other, talking to each other, you know, finding out where you go for a hot dog or things like I mean, people pass the hot dog. They don't throw your hot dog yeah. away because you're a Bears fan or something like that. I don't know what it's like for yeah. the teams exactly, you know, right. um, but it's, um, you know, the fan experience of, uh, is, is one of hospitality. So I think that could become to be expected then, right? We're, we'll go to Lambo and everyone will treat us nice. Then there wouldn't be any strategic advantage to it then. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It, it's interesting to see, like, certain cultures that have grown up in really harsh conditions tend to uh, create a... A culture of really openness and um, a mm. hospitality. You look in um, the places in the Middle East um, have a long tradition of being very open and saying like, okay, someone comes, you open the door and you you allow them in. And this also happens in uh, like I grew up in Montana, and so there's this certain amount of a tradition of this because it's a harsh environment. Um, and I wonder if if just because uh, Lambo's way up north and it's cold and they <laughs> you need to work together a little bit there there's you know if you, if you live in a too nice of an environment then it's easier for you to be more independent whereas if you live in a harsh environment you you have to depend on other people in order to you know, survive maybe not nowadays but at least those are cultures that uh, spring up in there 
Yeah. You know what, though? Some of the best fans are Chargers fans. So they were out in San Diego. They were like the <laughs> nicest people in the world. So I don't, I don't know if that would be a, count, a counterexample, but it was like San Diego <laughs> was one of the one places where I was like, oh, you guys can wear your jerseys and do whatever. You know, San Diego people like just hug, hug it up, you know? <laughs> That's actually a good segue into something I, I was wanting to ask you about, um, which is from a player's perspective, you, you encounter a lot of fans. What makes a fan a good fan? Like the kind of person who's not – a pain in the, the rear who you've got to deal with somebody who you actually look forward to, to engaging with what makes, I, I, I'm, I'm willing to bet. It's not like they, they, you know, bow down and they're like, Oh, I'm not worthy. You know, that sort of stuff yeah. that must get very old very quickly. Right. What makes, what makes for good fans? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question. I, I, I agree with you. I, you don't want, or at least it, at least I didn't want the the fan that was just going to uh, you know yeah prop you up and as some as some idol, um, but you I really like I said going back to Kansas City I really enjoyed the fans out there because it it really it really was a family atmosphere everywhere we went was a family atmosphere and uh, the the fans would embrace you. As part of the part of the family, I mean, my, my I remember some of my first weeks over there, uh, just how excited the fans were to see me, and it was like, wow, how did the how did the fans even know me? I'm so I'm this kind of obscure player who's only been out here for a couple of weeks, and uh, and they already know who I am. Um, but it, it it is it is just a sort of respect, like hey, and, and we're in this together, and. Uh, they'll still hold you accountable, right? So, like, I, I always appreciated fans who would who would say the truth and be like, "Hey, you know, Davida's got to do better. He's got to step it up." Uh, but not over the top, you know. You, you know, you have one bad game and they're they're calling for your head. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah. So it's it's in the it's a ten, in the in the uh, uh, in the middle of the the bow down to you or worship you uh, versus the oh you you had one slip up so you pack your bags and go home. Um, so yeah, no, no. I mean, Kansas City has has fantastic fans. I think they they do a great job. I would imagine it'd be similar to the fans in Green Bay. Yeah, very similar uh, uh, climates. Yeah, I mean, you do you do get some people who are uh, like on the boards or things like that, where they can they can check yeah. in. They're like, this person needs to go. That person needs to go. So I think you're always yeah. going to have some of those those fans but but in general it seems to be more like uh even if they're losing it's like well you got to back the pack and you know go do a good job guys sort of sort of attitude yeah, yeah, yeah. and and it's you know rarely what, oh, go ahead oh i'm sorry i mean i was just gonna say um the pack your bags thing drives me nuts because uh, from, from fans because I, we don't do this <laughs> Like you don't go to the guy from State Farm and say, you know, oh, you, you know, you had a bad dad today. They need to fire you and send you home so you can't provide for your family. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I just, I wish if there was one thing I'd say, I wish fans would would recognize this. Like, when you're calling for somebody to get fired, you're calling for them for their job to be in jeopardy, for them to lose their job and might not get. I mean, the NFL. Is is not a forgiving place. I mean, you yeah. lose your job more than one or two times, and you're not you're not back in. And so I just and I would have, uh, you know, I would have even friends up here in New England who say, "Hey, we we hope you don't play well this year because we don't want you guys to beat New England." So like they would say, "We hope you do poorly at your job." <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah. it's like 
you guys wouldn't you don't do that to the guy uh, working at Shaw's at the at the supermarket or at Dunkin' Donuts. Like he, I understand it's it's different. It, it's it is a game, so it's not totally comparable. But like I wish fans would have more sympathy for the fact that when you're calling for somebody's head, you you want them to literally lose their ability to provide for themselves and their family. Uh, and, and, and it's, a, it's stressful. It's, it's incredibly stressful when you're playing for a losing team mm. as a player, if you're not having a good season and you know, wow, my salary could be on the line. Do I have enough to make it? If I'm, if I, you know, get cut, I can't get back into the NFL. Uh, will I get another chance? I mean, the stress that players and coaches go through, uh, when they're, when, you know, when, when guys aren't playing well or things aren't going well is incredible. So if there was one thing that going back to the question as before, what makes a good fan? Yeah, that would be one important point. Like just recognize when you're calling for somebody to get fired, it's it's a real job that you're calling for somebody to get fired to. Yeah, you get fired from. You know, there's too much uh, separation from the the fact that you're actually talking about human beings and they they have you know uh, emotions and they can be hurt by people just yeah. you know, just because you don't get to know them on a personal level doesn't mean that they're not actually humans. That's, that's, right. that's a that's really good. interesting point. You know, um, it's sort of like treating them as if they're like characters, NPCs essentially in a video mm. game or mm. like you're, you're watching some drama on TV. Like I mean, I, mean, I, I used to, when I was younger, I used to actually talk to the, to the TV every once in a while, uh, you know, and say, that's a stupid, I didn't say obviously this, this sort of thing I said in other words, but that's a stupid decision. That person ought to, you know, be, be cut from whatever is going on in some adventure thing, right? Um, how how yeah. could you be so dumb? Uh, now that's totally irrational. Because obviously those people aren't hearing you. You're talking to yourself to a screen, right? Yeah. And 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 yeah, and people can... are forgetting that when they're dealing with actual teams, because those are actual people. Yeah. And and then you, it, it's much worse for football. Like it is a general thing to see people yell at the players at the yeah. screen. It's like they can't hear you. Well, like you are just yelling into the ether here it is producing nothing and it's just getting you riled up players um, I, coaches I really... and refs <laughs> right yeah yeah <laughs> yeah and 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 it's funny greg until i read it, this is the truth until i read your article a couple of weeks ago because I, I, I was just as guilty of of that until, and i never <laughs> even reflected on it i've reflected on fandom from an aspect of time or like like is it a time well spent to really sit at my sit on my couch and watch tv for four hours like is that is that really being productive uh is that really making the best use of my time but i never thought of the irrationality of like i totally with the chiefs two years ago um were in the afc championship game one game away from going to the to the super bowl and they lost to the patriots and i was i'm sweating this whole game and i'm yelling at the tv and I'm yelling at the guys, and I'm yelling at Brady, and I'm doing. You, you brought this up in your article about how people will do these weird superstitious things oh, where right. they sit down and like I'm, I'm doing that. Like I'm like I was on the I was sitting on the table before, and we scored. Like I'm going right back over there. Just and like I don't. I, it's so it's so funny because very rarely does anybody step out and say, what a this is nuts. Like if you came from, from an alien race and came down and looked at humanity, you would say, 
intelligent life hasn't made it this you know hasn't evolved yet on this planet because look at these people <laughs> at least during uh, games it's just, right? it's, yeah yeah just during games yeah that's right so uh, i wanted to bring up because like, this is kind of very similar how uh emil durkheim kind of describes religions as you know groups that are a unified system of beliefs and practices that unite members into a single moral community. And so you can mm. see there's a, a parallel between a lot of these practices, these superstitions, and what is really powerful about these particular types of organization is it has three things that interact with each other. Believing, doing, and belonging. And by doing, you are... Uh, perpetuating your own belief in the thing and doing these things then produces other people to say, Oh, this person is part of the group. And that makes mm. you be more um, welcome to be part of the group and lets you belong. And it binds people together, but it also blinds us. And we, then we turn things into sacred objects. And so for football, we can say, you know, uh, Tom Brady is the goat. If you're uh, a Pats fan, Tom Brady's the goat. You can't say anything. Nothing will ever say. He's like, you know, six rings. That's all you have to say. Six rings. Yeah. And you can just plug your ears and go la, la, la to anything else. Um, yeah. uh, but, like, there are there are really beneficial things to these types of groups. It, it reduces free riders. It increases trustworthiness within that group. And it increases commitment to that group by re- repeatedly doing these things. Um, but it also, it's, it's very much... Uh, benefits for the in-group and that does not mean that these things at all benefit anyone in the out-group yeah yeah that's really that's really interesting that's really i mean there's a book to be written about this i'm sure that i'm sure there has but um not not to go off on too far of a tangent but I, i i think about the political climate that we're in right now and i think about you know my time in kansas city and how I could sit down in a room with an atheist and two Muslims and two liberals and, and a conservative, and we can have this fantastic, respectful disagreement conversation, which we did in Kansas City. We had some really good thinkers uh, out there on the team. And yet, because we were all working for that goal and we were part of that community, and it was like, that never, because we would go out on that field and go to battle together, you never got into, it was never anything that you hated the other guy because of their different views. Yeah. Um, because you knew there was something bigger. And it's like, man, I wish we could get to the, that place in politics where we recognize the fact that we're in America, that we're all on this. I mean, everybody's on the same team, but as an American Society, we're all on the same. Like we all want to work for the same thing. We're all in a, we're all trying to reach the same goal. So it's like having this greater community, and as a as a in a political sense, uh, I think would. Uh, I I just know from my time in Kansas City, uh, we were able to have the disagreements that people are having now, but it was so much less volatile and, and heated up. And so, so I have a. Oh, so I look at my fandom of the Packers in in at least partially a distance way, but I also use it specifically because I want to scratch that community itch, and I don't want to do that with politics because politics is going to divide us. And if I if I like the Packers and I root for the Packers and I might root against the Bears or something, there's nothing that's materially being hurt 
by those the fans or the bears it, you know i don't want them to get hurt on the field as well um but but me rooting against the uh, half of the country uh, you know of the other political party um yeah. just means that i want them to have a worse life and i can't uh, wrap my head around why I should have that be the basis of a fandom that will uh, blind me to the benefits that we can use uh, together. Yeah. So you're saying you you don't want to take that sports analogy and apply it to politics because now you're going to see the other side as sort of the other team where they're the enemy. We're, we're, Is that what you're saying? It, I'm not. I'm saying that people do absolutely turn fandom, yeah. the political party, into the fandom. I'm saying that. <laughs> I try to stymie that by uh, using that that itch to have a fandom, to be part of a group that, you know, because we are social creatures, and I use football as that thing that scratches that itch, and like, okay, and then I can just divorce myself from the the uh, fandoms that kind of arise from politics. It's you gotcha. know, it's interesting. Gotcha. So two things: one with the politics thing. You know, if we are, if we were all one big team, wouldn't we need to be like one big team by opposition to somebody else, like you know China mm. or Russia or something yeah. like that? Which we did have That's like during point. the Cold War, you know. Uh, for yeah. example. But the other thing is, so I, you know, I love talking football and I enjoy it, and I, I like you know I watch to see what other teams are doing and stuff like that, so I can actually like talk with people from from other areas about that. But I know that especially among academics there's a lot of people that are not into sports at all. And as soon as you start bringing that up, they're like, I don't do sports ball. Cause that's their code for it. And, and I think yeah, that yeah, the yeah. reason why they say that is they feel excluded. You know, they feel like they're not, yeah. they're not part of the conversation. And, and I can understand that cause there's plenty of fandoms that I just, you know, don't fit into when it comes to music. I know metal and I know a few other things here and there, but if people are talking about all sorts of other genres, I'm I'm at sea, and now I don't usually let it bother me because they're not. I don't feel like they're they're deliberately excluding me, but I think a lot of people do feel like if we're focusing heavily on sports fandom, um, we're we're leaving them out in a way. Mm. You know. Yeah, I. So you're, and you're talking specifically about the academic that's that's big in the academic world i would say that that there's a higher concentration of them in in academia but you can find people that aren't into that you know that that sort of fandom all over the place and and they may be into some sort of other fandom of their own you know yeah the tech scene was like that a lot especially in in the northwest until seattle started being good (laughs) Mm. (laughs) and then people start wearing jerseys and things yeah (laughs) well that's interesting (laughs) Yeah, I, it's interesting because I get to see both worlds, and I, as a you know, looking at my football career, I I know firsthand how much work it took to got to get to the top, right? To be one of the best, yeah. in the world, and so now making the transition to the academic world is being incredibly humbling. And like I said at the start of the show, Greg, I have been a fan of yours because I see the level that you're at, right? The level of the philosopher that you have become. And it's just like, you know, it's like being the high school kid again and watching, you know, the Tom Brady and those guys. And it's seriously. And so I, I wonder if people need to recognize, especially you talking professional academics yeah. and, and professional tech people. It's like, you guys, you guys have made it to the top too. Like, like to be a professional philosopher, I, 
when I first started studying philosophy, one of my first ethics class, we read the, the Kant's groundwork. That's a That's tough a one. That's a small book. Great. Yeah. I'm, I had it memorized and I didn't know what he was talking about. <laughs> I could, I, I watched your stuff on Kant. Probably, I probably spent hundreds of hours and I, just for that that's, little book. That's partly a function of Kant though. Kant is, is he's writing in his own code, right? He's sort of like doing, if you're thinking about like exercises, right? He's sort of like um, an obstacle course packed into one little block, you know? Uh, right, right. Maybe in 3D too, you know? Right. But now, but now, Greg, but now you've done, I mean, I can find any philosopher, history of philosophy, I can go to your channel and find you giving a detailed well, not yet, sure. not yet, because there's still a lot of gaps, but there, there are, there are at least some that, that I can do that with. But, you know, <laughs> you know I, I was going about... to joke and say the good thing about academia and philosophy is I don't have guys trying to tackle me. You know? Yeah, have to run yeah, down the field, right. you know, worrying about whether whether I'm going to damage a tendon or something like that. You know? Yeah, <laughs> so. I did, but see, but sometimes I'd be like, man, I, I I would take that over trying to. I look at the critique of pure reason after I got done with the groundwork, and I'm like, well, that's going to sit on the bookshelf because <laughs> that would take me my whole life to get through that. Well, you know, <laughs> so I, I think I, I say all this to say, uh, you know. I wonder if people recognize that, uh, especially in professional areas like what you're doing, Greg, uh, you've made it to the top. Like you're a pro, you're a pro, you know, and I wonder if that would help sort of bridge the gap where you're not feeling excluded because because I I have a ton of respect and I want to be a part of the academic community because I see the pros and I'm like, damn, I want to be like one of the pros. You know, there's a really funny story and I think Dan is the one who reminded me of it most recently about A.J. Eyre, this British philosopher, meeting Mike Tyson. And Mike Tyson was giving giving some girl a hard time uh, trying to hit on her or something like that. And, and A.J. Eyre was like in his 80s and he intervened at a party. And Mike Tyson was like, I'm the heavyweight champion of the world. I'll knock you out, you know. And A.J. Ayer said, listen, we're both, you know, highly respected professionals in our respective fields. You know, I, I don't know that I'm the champion, but I'm pretty close. Why don't, why don't we go have a drink together? Yeah. yeah. And Tyson was like, yeah, okay, this, this guy is. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. And it's so true. It's so true. That's, it's been incredibly humbling since I retired, right, because. What I didn't originally recognize when I got done with football, but when you, you make it to the top, and I was like, oh, I'll be good at anything I do, right? I'm a oh, pro. Interesting. I'm be yeah, a pro. Yeah. And, and so I've been, you know, I started martial arts into jujitsu and stuff like that. Guys, it's been five years. I, I haven't beaten anybody. <laughs> I get the crap kicked. I just crap beat out of yeah, but, yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, philosophy, it's taken, it took two master's degrees to get into a PhD program. And I have all the assets in the world, all the time in the world, a love for it. I can just study it constantly. And it took two masters. It took five years to finally get good enough to, to get into a PhD program. And so it's been incredibly well, humbling to see. Oh, that's ahead, a Greg, segue sorry, into sorry. something I wanted to ask you to talk about just a little bit. And, we, and we're getting close to the end. So uh, don't go into yeah. like super detail. But why okay. philosophy of all fields i mean I'm, I'm happy that you're studying it but it's it's kind of a yeah. surprise so what was what was yeah. the motivation 
Yeah, it's interesting, Greg. I don't know if I just got hit the right way. It, it started, I became a Christian in 2007. And one of the first things that really changed when I became a Christian was wanting to study and read. I don't, I don't know if I had read a, a book front to back prior to 2007. I mean, seriously. Okay. And so I made, and then that's talk about the college system. Like I made it through college without reading a book front to back. So uh, maybe, maybe something needs to happen there. But um, yeah, no, I, I started with theology and then I, I, one thing I couldn't stand about theology, and this is kind of, I saw the philosopher early was everybody was so held on to their views, right? So like when I, when I started, I, I didn't believe in the trinity i held to a, a like a oneness model of god and i talked to my trinity friends and they'd be like nope you're going to hell like it's over you know like you can't and then i talked to my oneness buddies i'm like hey the trinity people had some good stuff I'm like nope going to hell you can't believe in the trinity so i was like i'm out like i'm out i can't do this yeah, yeah. i want to have a discussion you know so then it morphed into apologetics uh, but then studying more apologetics, I was like, oh, no, no, it's not, it's not really apologetics. Like, I, I like apologetics because apologetics and philosophy are very similar. But, like, I don't really feel like sitting around and debating the fine-tuning argument yeah, yeah. for hours. I don't, you know what I mean? I was like, I want to study, you know, I want to study abstract objects. And I want to study the foreknowledge and freedom problem. And I, so I, I, I just, and then I found my home uh, in 2016 after I took my first philosophy religion course. I found my home in philosophy. I was like, I just started reading, you know, or graduate level textbooks and yeah. uh, Kant. And, and I was like, oh, I'm, I'm hooked. I'm it was just like, I'm, I'm really addicted. Like, I know it's bad when I don't want to go lift weights because I want to read. <laughs> wow. You know, like, that's bad. That's, well, that's a thank good you very much for that. Uh, we got to get to our practice here. Yeah, so if we want to be rational fans, maybe a Stoic practice could be helpful for us. We call it the reserve clause. And I think this could be helpful when you're watching a game or you know, doing anything else. Do you want to say a little bit more about it, Dan? Um, so yeah, like the idea of, uh, in Christianity, the reserve clause is God willing. And so in, in Stoic uh, philosophy, it's, it's fate willing. And so like, I'm going to try to do this thing you know, God willing or fate willing. It's like, I, my, the whole idea is to remove your desire for the thing to, I have an aim for a thing and I'm going to desire what actually happens. And hooray, if the thing, the thing that I'm aiming for actually happens, that's great. If it doesn't happen, that's also great. I now have a new position of new reality and I can work towards that goal or you can find a new goal, but you don't desire the things that okay. you don't have control over. That's, that's so, so Go ahead. Uh, and so, I guess, to today we're going to leave you with the words of Vince Lombardi. The price of success is hard work, dedication to the job at hand, and determination that whenever we win or lose, we have applied the best of ourselves to the task at hand. <laughs> <laughs>